On today's podcast, we have Chaba Kankoli. Chaba is the co-founder and president of Hum Capital, an innovative funding platform that leverages AI to connect great companies with the right capital. Born in Hungary, Chaba's investing career has amassed a global network. Chaba's lived and worked in Budapest, Moscow, Geneva, London, New York, Miami, Singapore, and Los Angeles, where he currently resides with his wife and three children. As an LP, Chaba actively allocates to hedge funds, private equity, and other alternative strategies such as private credit. Between 1997 and 2012, Chaba successfully built three hedge funds. As an early stage investor, Chaba has invested in five unicorns, Truecar, Scopely, Trax, and Clutter. Together with Matt Watkinson, Chaba co-authored the must-read book, titled Mastering Uncertainty, published by Penguin Random House. In this episode, we discuss the role of randomness, the importance of partnership, and the high-performance lessons that transfer from investing to other high-performance domains. I hope you enjoy. Chaba, welcome to the podcast. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. James, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Would you mind taking us right back to the beginning and giving us a little bit of um, uh, context into to your background, you know, where you grew up and where it all began for you? Absolutely. Uh, born and raised in Hungary, and I grew up behind the Iron Curtain, which collapsed in 89 when I was about 17 years old. And I would say that's the single largest stroke of luck that could have happened to to me, which is I was old enough to take advantage of uh, this incredible shift, but still very young that I was so green and so inexperienced that I didn't know what I was doing. But in terms of childhood, people always ask me like, what was it like to to grow up in communist Hungary? And I would say, we had no idea because we were just so isolated from from the world in terms of media access. This is before the internet uh, or anything. So we just thought that the whole world looks like the way Hungary does. And then we got glimpses into what a more consumer-oriented Western world could look like because we had inbound tourists from West Germany uh, there is a lake in Hungary called Balaton, which was a frequent meeting point for friends and family who got divided up from Germany okay. because Eastern European countries could only travel to Eastern European countries. So the East Germans could easily come to Hungary. Westerners could go around anywhere in the world. So that was the first time where I got to see like a, Mercedes-Benz or BMW or Nike sneakers or, or you know, canned beer or canned Coca-Cola, all these things that were normal on the West, which is like, wow, that's just like a completely different world. And I'd say that catalyzed me to be just very curious and just go for it. And I, as I said, uh, I was born at the right time. Wow, so interesting. I mean, you're reflecting back on that. Is there, I mean, do you have a, a favorite, is there a, a favorite childhood memory um, you, you have? 
for me, it's so hard to pick favorites, but I would say that one that stayed with me is my grandparents took me to Vienna. Okay. And that was the first non-communist country that I, or city I ever had a chance to visit. And we took, we took the train and they took me to downtown uh, Vienna. And I walked into a sporting goods store and I saw probably hundred different kinds of sneakers. Okay. And yeah. I'm not a sneaker head by any means, but I've always thought that there is only one kinds of sneaker that is available. That was, I was, that's what I was shown in the shop windows in Hungary. And yeah. to me to go through this hundred X expansion was just like, wow, this is just awesome. How do I sort of, how do I sort of get into this? Not necessarily the sneaker mark, but just like 100x expansion of my my universe. That was just like crazy. I and imagine, yeah. It, it, we couldn't afford any of that. And it, I didn't I didn't need another pair of sneakers. So it was like, wow, this is a hundred Xer. Wow. And you know, what was the what was the first moment? Because it's obviously that, that it, it sparked that curiosity that you, that's part of you. But what was the first moment you you sort of considered a prospect of pursuing the path you did in terms of your profession? Mm, so certainly several lucky elements and then the obvious path. Uh, the lucky elements were that I was going to pursue economics uh, irrespective of the of the regime change. And ironically, I went to university that before the Iron Curtain fell was called Karl Marx University. Oh. And, and, it, yeah. and even to this day, like my diploma says that I studied international economics, i.e. very different than the centrally planned sort of communist economics and and you know they opened stock markets around eastern europe and uh, i was curious i decided to sort of poke around i got a lucky break uh my cousin was gonna start a brokerage firm in 1993 uh my third year in university, uh, that brokerage firm is still thriving in Hungary after so many decades and probably the most prestigious firm. And they needed a coffee boy. Mm -hmm. And he asked me if I has, you know, hard my studies are at university. Like, I'd love to be the coffee boy. And, you know, I progressed fast from there. And in terms of the path, uh, as we started traveling, just because Europe is so accessible, if you have a little bit of budget, it just became clear to me that after I've gone to London, Paris, Amsterdam, et cetera, this is like, okay, there is no way that I can 
I'm going to stay in Hungary because I'm just a lot more curious. And don't forget, Hungary is only a country of 10 million people. Yeah. And so so from there, so you talked about you, you progress quite quite fast what would what do you think it was that enabled you to progress at that early stage fast was it you, you talked about this word curiosity um do you think it, it was a natural fit were there certain strengths that you're bringing to the table or was it the appeal of that travel and on all those that just you know you know all those things we've talked about i would say that the biggest driver that to this day is core to my approach is that most people are so risk averse in terms of their approach to solving problems. And especially as it relates to sort of sweat equity, they wanna like, they just go at things slowly. They try to carefully analyze and like make sure that, you know, nothing can go wrong and the boss won't be upset and, uh, whatever they are. And since I didn't know anything about anything, I just said that maybe I should just go at 200 miles an hour. <laughs> and my initial job was to take the phone book, call as many select institutions as I can and try to convince them to sell certain securities to us. Uh, there were securities issued in Hungary called compensation vouchers. And that has to do with lost property during communism. So if you were a municipality or if you were a agricultural institution or, or basically any formerly private, but during communism government owned uh, institution, you got issued these vouchers. And they had no use for it other than to convert them into cash so they can support their budget or whatever. And since there was no real use of these vouchers, uh, the price was, if I remember correctly, it was 30 years ago, so I, my memory may be hazy, but there was no natural reason why the price would go up. So it was sort of a one-way street. So my job was to cold call people and offer them to buy these vouchers of them. Uh, and somehow I excelled at that and I, I was able to, like, the hours I could call were driven by market forces, so nine to five. But somehow I just, I, I managed to get a good rhythm and it became a very profitable endeavor for me and the firm. Mm -hmm. uh, so much so that the company had to cut my commission rate three times consecutively because oh, I was making so classic. much money. Yeah. But but I was still grateful for the opportunity because I was still at university. So so yeah. it was like it was a win-win. Okay. And was it were there any particular um individuals that as, as inspired you at that point in time? You know, as you're 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 young, you, you've just started traveling, you're you're finishing your degrees. Were there any thought leaders in this space within economics that, that that gripped you or inspired you? Not at that point. I would say that, you know, the bulk of my training has really come in the subsequent 25 years. Like 
the the first few years and and I started in business in 1993 so about 30 30 years ago uh or 31 years ago but back then I was busy with just my studies work and living life and when I had a good fortune of of getting an offer or manufacturing an offer for myself in Moscow that led us to move to London, et cetera. And sort of, I got exposed to the real world, real financial centers, et cetera. That's when I became like a voracious reader. And since then I kept that up and I try to read minimum 50 books a year, uh, hopefully more. And, you know, over time, if you keep that habit up for a couple of decades, then hopefully knowledge builds up. Oh, hell yeah. You you talked there about an opportunity, um, Moscow, that led you to London. Could, could yeah. you talk about how that came about? Uh, yeah, so I... I just everything is random. I, I think that life is just so random. And... And back in the early 90s, uh, the Russian market was just booming. And several partners of a famous investment bank, Credit Suisse First Boston, were going to depart and start a company called Renaissance Capital in Moscow, which became a big deal. And one of my mentors was a partner uh, at Credit Suisse in Hungary. And he had a going away party. Uh, and I got invited. I think we got both a little tipsy. <laughs> and I said to him, hey, if you need a coffee boy, let me know. I'd be glad to be your coffee boy. I was still literally one semester away from graduating from university and that was going to be my second job and the next day he called me up and says like i don't exactly remember how our conversation went but i remember that we talked and what did we talk about and i said to him well i think he offered me a job but i think we both were drinking so if you want to go back on on it, no hard feelings, but if you meant it, then I'd be delighted to sort of explore this. And he arranged a series of interviews for me that needed me to go to Moscow. And I had about two months to learn English because at that point, my English was somewhat functional, but nowhere near to be able to, to, to sort of ace an interview. So basically I hired two tutors, one guy from America, one from England, who were teachers at Berlitz, the language school. And I asked them to come with me to London. We moved into a the predecessor of an Airbnb. And we lived together for two months and they were tutoring me basically 24 seven. Wow. I tried to sleep as little as possible. Uh, so I can just get over the hum. But 
I would say that I I managed to get my English up to a point where I was comfortable flying to Moscow, you know, conduct the interviews. I got the job with a little help and I never looked back. And London. So, so that next step, how was that for you? Uh, London was incredible just because, you know, Moscow was the opposite direction. I, I intended to go. It was right. to the east and I was coming from the east, but it felt that it was a necessary first step. Uh, and, you know, through that job in Moscow, I got to travel to the US and then I could contrast and compare New York to London, etc. And I said like, Wow, this is just incredible. I, my mind was blown when I first walked on Fifth Avenue in New York. That was February of 1996. And I was looking at these skyscrapers and everything. I've never seen anything like that. I was just like blown away. And uh, and then London was just the pinnacle of culture, finance. It's so regal, very international, so elegant. And... Uh, it was a foundational time. I proposed to my wife in London. Two of our kids were born in London. Oh, wow. One was in New York. So we have very fond memories from both New York and London. Yeah. And and at what point as you're advancing through your career, did did you sort of, or did you reflect internally and be like, I'm I'm good at this? Because it's obvious you've gone on to achieve some incredible things, but at what point did you, or was there a point where you sort of thought, "Hey, I've really got something here in terms of taking this to to the the tip of the spear in this space"? Never once. Wow. Okay. Because the gap where I started was so wide compared to sort of by then heroes of mine that is just like i never thought i could catch up and now that i look back i think that our ascent was insanely fast not dissimilar to the ascent that you see in technology when a talented individual quits harvard or whatever starts a company and becomes insanely successful mm. so the outcomes are different and the paths are different but the rate of change was just as fast but it wasn't obvious to me then it is only obvious to me now by being able to compare various paths and various sort of and slope of progression or yeah or type of or the negative progression sometimes <laughs> because in life, everything is a zigzag. But to this day, I just I just think that there are individuals who are just like certainly a lot more talented. Uh, but at least now I can contextualize my journey on a relative basis. And I say like, okay, this is not bad. It's pretty good. And what do you think some of the conditions were that say... You know, we talked about yeah, it's a zigzag, but in terms of your development trajectory, 
were there any periods where you feel like that arc sort of steepened quite quick sort of maybe what i might describe as a significant emotional event where you have a breakthrough experience in terms of your perceptions of potential of in terms of the opportunity in front of your organization or something that shifted your perceptions of your own potential um or, or were there just certain conditions where you were you were you were constrained by um uh, uh, something happening in the market that forced you to develop a certain skill a bit like your english ability you know the, the development trajectory was ridiculous through that two-month period yeah yeah so uh so as a parent, when I reflect on what um what me and my wife are trying to sort of help our children to get right, mm -hmm. basically it comes down to two variables. Uh, find a love of your life and find something that you can be really good at. And I would say that I lucked at in both. Okay. Uh, without Judy, this journey would be very, very different. And perhaps with a lot less meaning. And in terms of professionally, uh, it is so hard to sort of define what one's good at right? Because investing is a combination of art and science. It's not like you can go to school and learn your craft and then you perfect that craft and you become the best at it. Uh, because almost everything is a variable in finance. Like The cost of capital is a core concept uh, in finance. And a couple of years ago, we had negative interest rates. Like you had to pay a percent a year to your bank in Europe to hold your money. That is just like, that is just so wacky. Hard to get your head around. And it comes the oil to... going negative. And uh, I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. So my point is this field is super hard to master but i would say that that my biggest gift is that somehow i perceive risk very differently than mm -hmm. others in terms of putting in sweat equity into any effort Somehow I have the, the self-confidence to just go for anything. And if it doesn't work out, it's not going to be for lack of effort. And since I believe that most things are very hard to calculate or quantify, I don't think that we can be precise about the potential upside. We can be precise about the potential downside, which is hopefully you cannot lose more than what you put in. <laughs> and if you're comfortable losing that, then literally you've, you've 
eliminated your stumbling block because from there on everything else is gravy, right? So I've, I've used this approach to everything that I do. And that was exactly my approach to learning English. Is it like, what's my cost here? So I need to finance this for two months. And if I don't get the job, then I, at least I speak English and I'm sure I can get my old job back or whatever. Am I willing to take this risk? And that I've earned an incredible IRR on that two months sort of investment. And it was very expensive. Like I literally yeah. had two tutors full time for two months and I had to cover everything, our rent, food, everything. So it was an insanely large allocation of capital for me, given my resources then. But to me, it was a no-brainer. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a great example because one of the things that I've loved about working in finance is well there's so many lessons in finance in terms of risk management that i think are so transferable to just decision making full stop and i think there's treasure troves of lessons like the, the examples you've just given of where these principles are so transferable to the way you think about you know decision making outside of investing in terms of your life because we're all taking risk day in day out right in terms of how we spend our time, effort, ambition, where we, the decisions we make. And, and, and I think that that's a great example you've just given there. Um, in terms of your time in finance, is there something, or what do you love most about it? What do you love most about the role that you, you've performed, you've been performing in for the last 30 years or the industry even? Yeah. Uh, so, I would say that of the three decades, two thirds has been spent in a certain way. And the last third has been spent in a certain way. And the first two decades were fast public markets, uh, trading, built three hedge funds with incredible partners. Uh, knock on wood, I'm proud to have our track record. It was exceptional. Uh, was quite hard, as in trading and producing returns that are marked daily and compared on a risk-adjusted basis or volatility-adjusted basis is a very, very hard endeavor because the smartest people compete in this field. So I'm glad that I've done it and I'm glad that I was able to graduate to allocating money as opposed to doing it day-to-day. -day. And... You know, us moving to Los Angeles was another eye-opener. I had certain uh, macro views back in 2009, and I was insanely bullish in the U.S. At that point, we were living in Singapore. 
And we had three children under the age of five. And I just convinced my wife mm -hmm. to move to Singapore with me. And the world collapsed in 08, 09. I came to the US to look around and I said to Judy, hey baby, I, I know you're gonna kill me, but we just have to move back to the US. It's just uh, the, the entire world is on sale. I think the US is the most innovative country. Like we went to emerging markets to get a good deal. We can get a double whammy because we're getting the same quality of D or same amount of discount, but in a higher quality asset. Sure, sure. And luckily she was amenable and we've been here for 15 years. It was a tremendously sort of good decision. And I spent the last 10 years as an entrepreneur investing in technology and trying to sort of be value add in companies, either as a co-founder or a board member or board observer, and to sort of just carry significant weight in, in strategy and capital allocation and, and, you know, growing the business. That's fascinating. You, you talked about the sort of success you've had and that, and for the record, that's one of the things I love about finance versus any other area of business. For me, it's, it's particularly trading and investing. It's the mental sport, right? Because you've got this scorecard. You've also, you've got some that the, the highest IQ, highest people in terms of industriousness, you know, gen generally, um, coming into the space. Uh, I know Elon Musk's often moaning about that, how we have to funnel them into other areas. But as a performance guy, it's a dream to work in, right? Because you can measure everything and you've got these people that are really smart and work really hard. Um, so it's a dream for me. But you talked about partners that you've worked with. Like, is there, are there a couple of people that stand out of your career or like that, that have, have really been an absolute privilege to work with and learn from and have helped bring out the best in you. And and, and then the follow-up to that might be like, how do people, you know, advice to people listening who are perhaps, whether it's something entrepreneurial or or within finance or any other area, but what do you look for in, in terms of these partners? Because it sounds like they're really important in, in by the way you speak about the journey and the results you've produced with them. Yeah. Uh... I've had the privilege of working with maybe five to 10 people that have been instrumental in my life. And hopefully it's mutual. And I'd say chances are that it is because after all these decades, we are still close friends and we collaborate and, mm -hmm. and, and things together. Uh, and I wish I'd have their uh, approval to name them, but all of my cohort of friends is very private. Of and course, yeah. I am not sure that they would appreciate, but they know who they are. But what are the sort of traits of those individuals, if you don't mind sharing that? Yeah. So without sounding elitist or anything, but this is just a, the function of the field, all of them are super intelligent. Mm -hmm. uh, and that means that 
there is unilateral capacity to to discuss things at very high level, and you can really sort of spar or brainstorm. Uh, from one of them, I learned creativity, as in just completely thinking outside of the box, like completely. It's not even like, it's not even just like close to the box. It's just like in a whole different room or different building even. Uh, from another one, I learned uh, work ethic. This particular individual uh, wanted to trade Europe effectively out of LA. Obviously, the time zone is super wacky. Mm -hmm. So for the period of time, he would go to bed at 6 p.m., even though he was a dedicated father and husband, etc., wake up at, I don't know, midnight, so he can just trade Europe more effectively from California. Like, oh. like there's literally one sort of common trait is that it seems nothing would stop these people from winning. Uh, from another one, I learned loyalty. Like, it's just you know, being there uh, for one another. And then obviously just all those early guys who gave me a chance. Uh, it's been sort of, these are all kind, loyal, insanely hardworking uh, people who just destined to win and just would never give up. Like just the thought of ever not winning is just not part of their DNA. And this this I learn I I I I I take pride in this like you can't always win, but I refuse to lose. <laughs> and these are winning winning and not losing, they are not the same. But I say, I can't promise a win, but I'll I'll do my absolute best that we don't lose. Yeah. Brilliant. I love that. And uh, yeah, it echoes and transfers across multiple domains, doesn't it? That that mentality that, that people that produce those results tend to demonstrate. In terms of your career so far, is there a period of, of time that stands out to you as a, as what I would might describe as a peak experience or a blue head moment where you were as a performer at your be best in terms of your, your ability to perhaps perceive the market, you know, make decisions within, in terms of recognizing patterns, problem solving to solutions, considering options. Is there a period of time that stands out as a, a unique in that it all came together at the absolute peak in terms of what you had mm. I've got a couple of highlights but I really hope that I'm so far from peaking <laughs> I'm only 51 and the beauty of 
this industry is that you can literally do it forever. Sure. And the longer you do it, the better you become at it. Yeah. Evidenced by, and not that I would compare myself to these outstanding individuals, but look at Buffett. Charlie Munger just mm. passed away, but he was close to 100. There was George Soros. There is so many legendary investors who've sort of literally dedicated their whole life to to investing and capital allocating, and it just never gets boring. So you can do it forever. Uh, so I'd love to imagine that I'll be able to progress. But I would say the, the, the two things that I've, I've learned or, or relate to your question, one is that at least in private investing, everything takes a decade. So you can't really measure your progress on a daily or a weekly basis. It's very, very hard. And one of my companies went through uh, a very rough patch uh, around the time when Silicon Valley Bank uh, had its struggles. And turning that situation around, I would say that was one of my key uh, victories. Okay. And now that company is growing super fast, profitable, on a good path. And it's it's only been 10 months ago when we had that incredible, uh, challenging window in time. And what goes and through your head when that moment strikes? In, you know, there's that initial shock, I guess, you have, you know, that there's been this threat or challenge that comes up. What's your sort of default response in those periods? Or is there a set routine or pattern of think thinking that you engage in? So do you even really perceive it as a, 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 as a threat? The first line of thinking is that, is it me or is it the externalities, right? Because if it's me, then I need to just, you know, face the reality. Is that like just comparing it to sports, like, if I'm not the fastest runner and actually everyone else around me is getting faster and I'm not, then it's me, right? Uh, I'm not improving with my cohort. Uh, but if it's externality, as in I just had a injury or whatever it is, then you try to sort of stick to the program and that point I made the conclusion that it's not us. So it's external, therefore it should be solved and it can be solved. Uh, but I'll give you another example. I would say that in 2008, I was at the top of my investing game, but I was the most miserable because I didn't understand the markets. Uh, and I didn't understand the markets so much that I decided to close my hedge fund in the spring of 2008, which in hindsight was, was the absolute best decision 
because I managed to avoid the carnage of 08 or 09. Wow. Uh, wow. And I finished the year positive for 08. And that sort of in retrospect, that is just like the recognition of if it doesn't make sense, just, just step away, right? Activity doesn't always produce productivity. And you're in the, like, we do things not for the sake of activity. We do things for the sake of positive outcomes. So if, if your actions cannot guarantee positive outcome, stop your actions. Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but before we dive deeper into the conversation, I want to express how grateful I am that you're voluntarily choosing to spend your time here with us. I also want to take a moment to ask for your support. I want to bring you the best podcast I can in terms of guests, engaging discussions, and thought-provoking conversations every week. And that's where you come in. By hitting that like button and subscribing to the podcast, you play a vital role. Simply put, when you hit that like button or subscribe, you enable the podcast to reach a much wider audience. And the wider the audience, the easier it is for guests within my network to convince their agents, management teams to free up their diary and come on the show. Thank you in advance for your likes and subscriptions. Now, let's get back to business. So, I guess if we talked about translating some of the lessons from, from finance to more generally in life. What would you what would you say the takeaway then is for for individuals who perhaps are in those moments where they're they've been presented with a challenge they've maybe done what you've talked about in terms of first line second line thinking um, what do you think the key takeaway there is to to not be afraid to sort of step back and reassess assess the situation rather than just activity for activity's sake yeah. Uh... So the, the reason it's sort of hard to give a blanket answer is that everyone's very different. So I think all the tools and approaches need to be tailored to the individual. Mm -hmm. And I would say that it's probably true in sports as well that different athletes in different sports need different training approaches and yeah. or even heuristics yeah sets of heuristics to go through their decision making yeah in terms of their personality type and yeah so 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 i would say that the number one advice i i can give is that First, know yourself. Know yourself of who you are, what you're capable of, how much do you have in the tank? Uh, can you afford to take this risk? All these things. And at that point that I referenced for one of my companies around SVB going under, I was talking to my partner in the business and we said is this like the moment when you're climbing Everest and you know that you don't have enough oxygen <laughs> you must turn back otherwise you might be able to get to the top but you're never going to come down so that defeats the purpose and 
these type of analyses are required for every single situation. So perseverance and grit isn't always the the smart choice. Sure. Because sometimes a situation is not solvable in that way. But you need to make these sort of you need to answer these hard questions before you sort of set course for the action. Absolutely. And what do you think what are, what are you most excited about in terms of the opportunities that that lie ahead for the world in terms of the rate of change in tech? Because there's some, some incredible things happening. And you know, there's a lot of talk on the threats to mankind of AI, for instance. But what are some of the things that you're most excited about that you think tech has to offer society? Ooh, I am like... I don't know if I'm a specialist enough to to sort of venture opinions there. There are so many so many people who have their own opinions and agendas and 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 whatnot. But I can offer some general points, which is A I'm wired optimist. So I'm just going to assume that if we manage to get to where we are today, starting in a cave not too long ago, I'm going to assume that this trajectory is going to continue. Uh, Zigzagging. <laughs> yeah. Second, almost all technological uh, sort of advance is needs to be discounted of if there is no peace in the world. And I would say that geopolitically, I don't remember having this little amount of stability or said differently, perceived instability in my sort of adult life. And sure, we can go back and read history books, etc. I think they're all this super complex and it's not forecastable because now we know that certain crises in the world have been averted through sheer sheer luck. And yeah. we only know like we assume that it was genius, but it, in hindsight, it turns out it was like sheer luck. So I think the world is super complex, but but I take comfort in facts like how we dealt with COVID, not on the sort of the local state or city level, whether isolation was the right choice or not, but the way how the science, global scientific community came together and solve the COVID problem, uh, I think it's remarkable. Or the weight loss drugs that have come forward, like obesity is an insane crisis, mm -hmm. uh, certainly in the US and in 
even now in developing markets as well. And I think it's impossible to calculate the positive benefits of what it might bring. Uh, I think and, the National Health Service could do with some uh, some some help with that. <laughs> yeah, but I was just like, I don't know where I read it, but it's projected that American Airlines will be able to save 80 million bucks annually on fuel costs if people's weight normalizes. Wow. Right? It's just like, that's just one isolated example, let alone the psychological benefits of people feeling better uh, if they are healthier. Uh, I, yeah, I have no views on how AI is going to turn out, right? Uh, I find it fascinating. Uh, doesn't have much day-to-day -day utility to me. Chad G, I'm not using Chad GPT. I'm not writing essays or 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 research papers. Sure. I'm quite good at using Google to find information. So, but I'm amazed by like we do things like with my kids, we goof friends like the other day we said, Chad GPT. We want a poem that has broccoli, Coca-Cola, and a set of friends in it. And we gave this command uh, several times, and we got back several poems that are just funny. It's That's just like incredible. within within 15 seconds. It's like incredible, yeah. right? And every time we predicted that technology is going to kill X million jobs it has never been true in the past mm -hmm. i mean just look at how tight labor markets are three percent unemployment rate and we've never had i think it's only ever shifted the baseline of quality of life yeah we've never had more technology and unemployment is so low it's so hard to hire uh but i can't wonder there was this one scene in Star Wars when, you know, the, I don't even know which, it's not the bad guys, but the good guys are fighting against the bad guys. But it just seems that no one's doing anything because energy is there. With that energy, they have enough food and like, it was only Luke Skywalker and Han Solo are fighting and no one else is doing anything. Everyone else is just like, chilling, drinking, playing games, etc. And sometimes I have these thoughts of like maybe in 2100, year 2100, the world's going to look like we have a limited free time. Chat GPT is doing everything for us. Uh, our food sources are like you take a pill and that's your yeah, yeah. nutrition for the day. Uh, I don't know, but I'm not a futurist. I've I've never read sci-fi books, so I, I can't really imagine what the future might hold. But I can say that I remain to be super optimistic in general. Uh, yeah. Fingers crossed that I'm right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'll keep mine crossed. 
And on that note, it's quite clear that you're super ambitious and you continue, you possess this desire to continue to excel and grow in, in terms of your expertise and your craft. Could you give us a little bit of insight into, I, I use this phrase like win the day, you know, uh, excellence is effectively, you know, a, a series of days repeated across time and the mean, the maximum, you need to maximize the utility you can extract from each day. Are there any things you do that help you win your days? Uh, yeah, I have my couple of personal tricks. One dates back many, many years. Uh, so when we lived in New York, we would run almost every day in the Central Park. And on the weekends when I had more time, I would do extra miles. So I would do two loops, which is about 20K. And there was an older gentleman, probably 80 or something, that I would sort of see almost every Sunday out in the park. And, you know, you if you run enough, you make friends there, you recognize the faces, you say hi to each other, etc. because everyone has the same time, same routine, etc. So we would recognize each other with this older gentleman. And one day I was in a chatty mood, which normally I'm not because I'm fairly introverted. And I asked him like, I'm sorry to bother you, sir, but may I ask you, what's your secret? And he wouldn't even skip a beat. We would not slow down or anything. He looked at me and said like, son, never stop. Okay. And it's like, Okay, I can do that. So I've had a fairly regimented uh, exercise routine where I work out every single day and I have been for the past 28 years. Uh, many people wouldn't know, but I used to be about uh, 100 pounds heavier. Right. So I'm about, I'm about 140 now and I used to be 240. Wow. And I was fairly out of shape. So it wasn't muscle. It wasn't all muscle, no. Yeah. I, I think I have more muscle now than I had then. And that was just a confluence of bad choices. But since I managed to sort of become my more fitter self, uh, I said, okay, I'm just going to stick to this because I didn't, I wouldn't enjoy going back there. So, for me, exercise is very uh, important. It just shows myself the discipline that I have to show up every single day, no matter what, whether I'm sick or not sick, whether it's Sunday or weekday or whatever, I'm, I'll just show up every day. Uh, it gives me the self-confidence that, that I can do this, no matter how hard the day is or the challenge is, I can do that. The second is my wife and I made a pact that we're going to run a marathon every 10 years. So we've done two so far. Nice. We are Which marathon. ones have you done? We've done the LA marathon and we've done the one in Ventura. Okay. Wow. Up, up the coast. Yeah. Uh, she's done three. I've done two. And again, it gives strength that, Running a marathon 
is very hard, especially if you don't do it regularly. Like, oh, yes. <laughs> for a marathon every decade, it's just like, you don't have much muscle memory left. It's just like, it's starting from scratch every single time. Yeah. Uh, and we don't do enough long distance training anymore where you have built up endurance, like all my activities around mobility and, 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 and just like, uh, longevity. So I'm not sure. pounding pavements the way I used to when I was 20 years younger, but again, it just gives the mental strength to, uh, to know that, yeah, you can do that and you've committed to it. Uh, the third thing is that I have good tricks, how to be able to focus on my own priorities versus other people's priorities. Okay. And what I mean by that is that an incoming email or text is someone else's priority. An outgoing email or text is my priority. So my approach to timeliness is different on these two. So I respond to everybody. I try to be helpful to everybody, but I prioritize either outgoing versus responding to incoming. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and then actually this approach to winning the day is very helpful because, because sometimes you have such a rough day that that's the only thing that can get you through is, is like, you just say, this was just a day. It wasn't a win, but it's okay because tomorrow is another day. Yeah. And, and hopefully they'll be better. But it's also, once you go through a rough patch, you can start measuring things as not like trends, but it's just like you can say, today was a good day. Yeah. And you can clock it as a win, yeah. right? You may be going through a shitty fucking time. Excuse yeah. my language. But like when you have a good day, it's like, yeah, today was a good day. I'm going to celebrate this. I'm going well, to recognize I think it becomes more important as well in industries like the one you're in, where, like you say, you might judge your performance over a 10 year period, right? So you could almost go stir crazy and you could, or, you know, an investor, you could be in drawdowns for periods of times. And I think that's yeah. where things like that, the short term benefits can, can really help orientate and give you that uh, release valve in that respect. Yeah. But I would say that one thing that I'm currently exploring is, is the balance between efficiency and the lack of efficiency in order to sort of catalyze creativity. Mm -hmm. Because with efficiency, everything is budgeted, calculated, planned, et cetera. So there is not a lot of space for serendipity or wondering or, or anything unplanned. So what I've decided to do is starting this year, I'm allocating five hours a week to formal learning of various subjects that I have no specific goal with. And I'm learning 
architecture, calligraphy, furniture wow. design, uh, sketching and drawing that have how diverse nothing to do with sort of my day to day, but I feel that my normal day to day is so dominated by logic, efficiency, numbers, decision making, etc., that I I would like to create a little bit of balance by focusing on some softer things yeah. uh, to see if I can detect any meaningful change in six months, 12 months. I'm going to commit to a year and see what mm -hmm. happens. Uh, but this is a new experiment for me. And I'll keep you posted how it goes. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check up on you on that because I had a very similar thought and I had a conversation with a friend this weekend. We were actually talking about the, the gym analogy and about how our training is very robotic and structured and progressive. Yeah. Whereas we were talking about the value you sometimes get in playing sport versus going yeah. to the gym. We yeah. talk, you know, when you express yourself playing football or even tennis, is very yeah. different from going to a gym and following a... I can almost copy paste program that repeats across time with, you know, adaptations to weights or times or, but it's the same. Yeah. In playing sports, there is emotion. Yeah. Where in, in going to the gym, there is, or going for a run, there is no emotion. Yeah. It's very it's, methodical. Yes. You sort of enter that slipstream and you're just unconscious. Uh, yeah. Get through it. Yeah. But, um, you know, and and that pivots nicely to a question I was going to ask you, actually, which was, you know, the other side of competing and training is rest, recovery, and that space to 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 be creative or for serendipity to present. Are there any, you know, how do you, you've obviously given us a great example of how how you're consciously trying to intervene and 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 prioritize that in your life? Are there any other sort of ways you do that perhaps on a daily basis or uh, annually? I don't know if there's set, you have set protocols with holidays or taking time off or rules around, you know, switching off completely for periods of time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Switching off completely is very hard and impossible to achieve. Uh, and I, wish it was easier, but it isn't because I think business is so competitive that you can't really dial it down and time never stops just because I'm, I take a breather. Everyone else is racing by me. Right. Mm -hmm. And also business is so compet competitive that you're either in it or not in it. You can't just be 60% in it, right? Uh, that's just not feasible. So the way I try to sort of maintain sanity is I prioritize, and again, this is like everyone else does it. So I'm not sure if your listeners will learn anything new, but like I'm a stickler for sleep. Eight hours, rain or shine. Like, I go to bed at 10.30 every night and I wake up at 6.30. So it's just like eight hours. I'm very lucky because I'm sleep is not a struggle for me. Uh, then on the weekends, I try to do as little as possible. As in, 
maybe one activity each is sufficient. And I spend the rest of the time just reading, hanging out with my family, doing nothing, going on walks, etc. And then I try to allocate at least two nights per week for dates with Judy, which mm -hmm. is super important for both of us. And in terms of holidays, uh, given that I'm just as much European as I am American, my obsession with always working is luckily not there. But I mean it with the caveat that I started with that if you're in business, you're in business all the time. You can't just not be in business. Uh, but I have zero issues taking vacations as often as I can. But I have a laptop. I take my work with me. But I don't have to be physically in LA to be able to work. And I enjoy my work tremendously. So it's a source of pleasure. That certainly helps. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's a source of pleasure for me. But whether I do it from the mountains or from, yeah. you know, wherever, that doesn't bother me as long as stuff gets done. And Third, one more thing that I think perhaps unique for me is that I try to cluster everything into Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, okay. which gives a four-day window to think because ultimately the big ideas, the big money-making things happen in the creative sections of my existence and then the operative sections are to sort of put it in motion or execute. Sure. And I try to limit that into a three-day window. That's when my assistants book meetings, calls for me, etc. And I have Friday, Saturday, Monday to sort of think, read, really write, crystallize, Etc. Uh, and that works for me really well. Brilliant. And you know, I, I, we've um, obviously got a, a very a good mutual friend. Uh, you co-wrote this incredible book, Mastering Uncertainty, with Matt Watkinson. And you know, you're a busy guy. You've got lots going on. What was it that prompted you to to get engaged? in that project because it's no, no, uh, no easy feat. Okay. So first of all, it's very generous of you to say, I co-wrote the book with Matt. <laughs> I would say it's a, not a capital C. I'd say it's, it's 99%, 1%, right? So okay. Matt gets the vast majority of the credit. But I, I take credit for the ideas in the book. And Matt and I met due to serendipity. Uh, 
we were at a dinner party in LA many, many, many years ago. And Matt happened to crack a joke that I liked tremendously. And we ended up exchanging phone numbers, chatting, exchanging phone numbers, and then we went out to grab a drink. And then it was very interesting because both of our backgrounds are super diverse and different. So I was fascinated by his world and he was fascinated by my world. And both of us were just shaking like, is it like, I don't understand what you find fascinated by my world. And he says like, I don't understand what you find fascinated by my world. It's like, it was just like very, very interesting that we had zero overlap. Other than the fact that both of us are immigrants, we had zero overlap, right? And we enjoyed each other's company. Therefore, we continued to hang out. And Matt would always come to me with a bunch of business-related questions, etc. And I enjoy talking about business. So I would always tell him what I think. And I always sort of like, look, be careful because this, this is just one man's opinion. I could be totally wrong. Uh, but anyway, over the years, he claims that he's learned so much from me that it sort of catapulted his business trajectory. Yeah. And he said, I'm convinced that there is many others in the world like me. And if it helped me, there was a chance that it can help others as well. And he said, I'd love to write a book about your ideas. And I said, like, Matt, we've been friends for five, six, seven years. You see that I communicate in letters, few words. When you ask me to write something, I write in bullet points. Like, dude, like, for me to write a two-page essay would be torture. <laughs> like don't worry about it i'm gonna do the writing all i need to do is is make yourself available for video interviews as like oh that's easy so that's how we that's how we ended up collaborating and i told him like look i've seen you struggle with your prior books like literally when he's going through the pain of writing he's like scratching his skin like he's got like rashes like it's a very It's a brutal process. It's like, look, the only way I feel comfortable exposing you to that amount of stress and harm is that like you, you take like vast majority of all the upside from, from this. I'm happy to sort of support it any way I can. And that's how we ended up doing it. Excuse me. Uh, And what a book. And we'll put the links up because I think obviously I think some of the things we've touched on today echo some of the subjects and ideas that that are in the book. So we'll make sure the links are up because yeah, people absolutely, it's an, it's an absolute must read read if you want to optimize playing the game of life, I guess. Um, And what's, what's most important to you at this stage of your career as you move forward? I would say that, at this point, I measure success by the feedback I get from my peers that I respect, 
tremendously in the industry because I think that's the most honest filter because sure we are producing numbers but the numbers cannot be compared on an absolute or relative basis because everyone is trying to optimize for something else right so some people might optimize for short-term returns. Some people optimize for long-term returns. Some people optimize for low volatility. Some people optimize for certain tax advantages or whatever it is. So it's very difficult to, to compare and announce the absolute winner. And it doesn't even matter. Uh, so I want to, I'm optimizing for as much positive feedback and sort of actionable things as possible from my peer group that I've been operating with for three decades now. Yeah. And I'll know that if the frequency of conversations or ideas or interactions decrease, that I'm getting stupider and less relevant. And if it's constant or in or increasing, then then at least I'm holding my current status or relative status. Brilliant. I like that. And a couple of questions left. I, I, I guess a follow-up from that is what what are you most excited about as an investor moving forward? Mm, the fact that I'm only 51. Yeah. That is cool about your craft. Yeah, yeah. The, the fact that I've been fortunate enough to to get to where I am today and I'm only 51. Yeah, it's incredible. That means that I have hopefully a canvas that I can paint on for another, call me an optimist for, for another 50. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. And that's just, that's just, you know, insanely exciting. Amazing. What would your advice be to someone who is aspirational in terms of accelerating their pursuit of excellence in their relevant craft, but who is perhaps maybe struggling a little bit, stuck in a bit of a rut, but knows deep down they've got more in them to give? What would what would the advice be from someone like yourself? Uh, I would try to understand what's the cause of the rut. Okay. I always go back to why in almost everything that I do. Understanding the why is the most important thing. So, you know, if I want to serve that individual in the most authentic way I can, I would ask him or her, why do they think that there is more left in them? Why are they in this situation? All these things. Because we live in our own head, but it doesn't mean that we can see situations objectively, right? So I would try to sort of get to the bottom of those two, then try to ask them, what goals do they have? Like, 
okay, you feel this in life. What would what would make you feel that you are winning again? And and then try to sort of reverse engineer the blueprint to get from A to B. Brilliant. I love that advice. And I think it's something so important actually for people to really take on board because I think our propensity whenever there's challenges to jump to solutions without truly understanding the problem. And I think I often talk about this idea that your aim should be to understand our problems so much that the solutions become so obvious. And exactly. if they're not obvious, you exactly. probably don't understand the solution, the, the, the problem well enough. Um, exactly. Awesome. Can I finish off with asking you some quick fire questions? Of course. Favorite movie? I only get to pick one. You can pick a couple. Okay. Meet Joe Black. Okay. Life of Adeline or Adelaide, I can't remember. Uh, and Dead Poet Society. Nice. Favorite series? 24. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Favorite book? I've read probably over 3,000 books. There is no way in hell I can pick one. I have been compiling a list of books for my children that gets curated every year because I have my yeah. list of books from prior year, but then I read 50 or 100 new books. So yeah. I have a couple, but I don't want to give them a list of a million. So it's being curated. Uh, but I... I uh, uh, like, I'm going to say something that is unexpected. I love spy novels. And there is an author called Daniel Silva. Okay. And I just love his series. To me, it just like, that's the one of the few times when I'm able to switch off. And just like, it takes me into another world. And I love them. Awesome. Greatest athlete of all time. Okay, so I don't know sports. Uh, I don't watch sports. But I'd say that Nadal and Federer are, you know, to see them play is an absolute pleasure. Uh, but I don't, like, Formula One racers, I'm so impressed by. Yeah. Skiers, I'm so impressed by. Uh, I watched the Michael Jordan documentary. Again, I don't know the history of the sport. I don't know the, sure. the ins and outs. I appreciate some of the... Uh... But but his dedication to his craft, oh my God. Like, it's just like... You know what, it, when you were talking about the traits of the partners you worked with and you were talking yeah. about that desire to win, 
Yeah. It made me think of that documentary actually. So yeah. for anyone listening that hasn't watched watched that, you you absolutely must. The last last dance is it? Last yeah, dance. Netflix yeah. is incredible. Um, yeah. Demonstration of some of the things we're talking about in terms of the traits yeah. of elite performers. Yeah. Um, and it, this one should be easier for you to answer. Then greatest investor. Is there someone that you do really put up there as like wow? Yeah, I mean, look. So. I think George Soros is the the greatest investor in terms of PNL generated uh, from trading activities. Like Buffett built his wealth through owning equity in businesses for several decades. Uh, that is also a incredible skill but no different than building, being an entrepreneur or founder of a business where you own a large stake and you ride it for several decades. Yeah. So in terms of investing acumen, I would say George Soros is, in my book, he's the top investor. And do you have a favorite quote or personal mantra that sort of, really sort of resonates with you related to investments related to to performance investing just a favorite quote that you use as a, as a sort of guides your your behavior you come back yeah to... uh, 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 so again when you have three kids you need to have uh a lot of quotes or at least i do because i try to sort of uh inspire them but i sent uh quote to them this weekend from Aristotle. Okay. I think is spot on for this interview. Complete coincidence. Brilliant. And here it goes. The poet should prefer probable impossibilities to improbable possibilities. Okay. I like that. Really like that. And I think that links very uh, clearly to the way you think. And, and and I'm thinking of the book there as well. So the essence of it is that winning the lottery is a possibility, but it's fairly improbable. But a lot of people focus on that. I tend to focus on the possible impossibilities. Someone says that this is impossible, but no one knows for 100%. But if the payoff is such that it might happen, I think chances are that going for it is a good risk reward. Yeah. Brilliant. Whereas no one, no one doubts that winning the lottery is possible. So it's a possibility. Yeah. But it's so improbable, yet so many people focus on it. Historical figures are dead. Yeah. Ooh. Jean-Michel Basquiat. Okay. And on that note, Chaba, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. Um, I know how busy you are, and it's honestly a massive privilege to have you on here. Um, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to get a, a beer sometime soon. Would love that. I'll keep you posted of my next trip to London. 
And I really appreciate you having me on. Uh, I hope I didn't disappoint. It's been fantastic. But all the best, mate. Ciao. Cheers. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with us today. I love this topic of human performance and excellence, and I've been engaged in it neurotically for the last 20 years. It's a sincere privilege to have the opportunity to share my knowledge, network, and learnings with you. Now, go and put the principles to work. Make sure you let us know what resonates. Reach out with questions. Blind spots, we've got you covered. Remember, excellence is just a series of days repeated over and over again. Now, go and win your day. In 2021, I published my first book, Accelerating Excellence. If you're finding the conversations and information on this podcast useful, you might want a physical reference point and to gain even deeper awareness of the concepts discussed. The book's actually more of an operation manual containing more detail with a step-by-step -step guide on how to implement all this stuff so you can get maximum benefit, which was one of my main motivations in writing it. Yes, I want the podcast and the book to be inspiring and entertaining, but it was non-negotiable for me to make sure that the listener or reader is provided with a structure and direction in terms of actually putting this stuff to work. The book's called Accelerating Excellence. It's a number one international bestseller. And if you're moving from more than just interest towards implementation, I think you'll really enjoy it. Like everything I do, the book is evidence-based, but practice-led, drawing on my experience, working with some of the world's most elite, exclusive, high-performing teams and individuals. It's filled with highly actionable strategies you can apply today to become better tomorrow. If this sounds like something from you, see the link in description where you can download six chapters of the book for free in either audio or digital format. It's also available to purchase on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and at your local bookstore. I hope you enjoy. By now, we all know the importance of a winning mindset. We're bombarded with elite performers telling us that mindset's what separates the best from the rest. That if we want to be successful, we need to be more confident, resilient, and motivated. And of course, when panic strikes, we need to calm down, relax, or chill out. Great, we get it. But the question is how? We're given this guidance with almost zero practical advice in terms of how to achieve it. Where can we actually go to develop that world-class mindset? What's the back squat for resilience, the bench press for confidence, and the bicep curl for positive thinking? Well, that's why I created the Mindset app. Through the app, you'll gain access to the psychological skills training used by world champion athletes, special forces operators, and some of the world's most successful traders and investors. The reality is these guys pay me a fortune to help them get this right. But the thing is, these skills are equally, if not more important for the aspiring athlete, executive or operator. And that's exactly why I created this app. I want these tools and training available to anyone, anywhere, anytime. Mindset is a skill, and like any skill, it can be developed with the right strategy and effort. The tools and techniques are designed in a way that will literally rewire your brain. Like learning to ride a bike or drive a car, all the techniques are designed with creating a high-performing, self-regulating U2.0. Every strategy in the Mindset app is backed by empirical research. There's 10-minute emotional control training exercises that have been shown to increase your ability to overcome detrimental decision-making biases by up to 80%. In another study, just three weeks of executing visualization training led to 34% improvements in performance. Another research group found 50% greater improvements in the rate of learning. And just a few weeks 
of performing visualization led to 22% reductions in anxiety and 21% increases in confidence. These numbers are phenomenal. And I've never met an elite performer in any domain that can afford to be missing out on this type of edge. What I love most is that we've structured everything so that you don't need to carve out an extra hour in your day to get this done. Small bite-sized chunks of five to 10 minutes are all it takes. In fact, I'd only encourage you to use the tool on your commute, in the sauna, at the end of your working day, or bolt it onto the end of your gym session. Any dead time you have can now immediately be transformed to deliver you extreme performance gains. My goal is to remove every possible obstacle to your development. And with that in mind, the basic package is completely free. Visit the link in description and sign up for our pre-launch free emotional control, visualization, and performance routine programs. I really hope you enjoy.